Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor, splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. And it will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the snow that's falling outside, for the, the beauty of your creation. Thank you for the children who uh, are healthy and happy and, and able to sing with us this morning. Uh, we thank you and, and pray that you would be with them and raise them up in you, in the faith, and in uh, all that's good and true and beautiful in the world. We pray for our time now, knowing that um, that you are among us, but praying that you would be among us in a profound way. We ask for more of an awareness of your presence even now. And I know that all of us are coming in and, in different places and, and from different places, and, and we're feeling all different things, maybe a lot of hurry, maybe a lot of, um, a lot of excitement, maybe a lot of dread, I don't know. But Father, would you, would you meet each of us where we are this morning? And I, and I know that you, in you, every one of our deepest longings is satisfied. And so as we look at this, this theme of home and, and see the joy that you hold out for us in, in your word, Lord, may you connect to our hearts the power of what you provide for us in Christ. Would you open us up to, to find renewal, to find strength, to find joy, to find hope in your word and in your son, and so we pray in his name. Amen. All right. Well, welcome again. We're really glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. We, glad, we are glad you made it through the snow. Uh, if you think about all the different themes, the prominent themes that we have in our culture, in our movies, in our books, in our music, one of the themes that has always stood out to me the most is the theme of, of traveling, a uh, theme of the road trip, the long winding journey, the journey home. And this theme has been around far longer than just our current generation. And I thought of the, the old scholar, the philosopher Augustine, who lived in the, 
the fourth century into the fifth century, St. Augustine was a North African philosopher and, and writer. And he writes that he has this incredible quote, and I, I shared it in the seminar last Sunday, but I think it's helpful. This is a biographer describing his, his work. He said, for Augustine, the gospel is a hard-fought epiphany that emerged after trying everything else. After a long time on the road, at the end of his rope, it wasn't just the answer to an intellectual question. It was more like shelter in a storm, a port for a wayward soul, nourishment for a prodigal who was famished, whose own heart had become a famished land. It was like someone had finally showed him his home country, even though he had never been there before. It was the father he'd spent a lifetime looking for, saying to him, welcome home. Augustine, who spent the early part of his life in Africa, moved to Rome and he got educated and he moved up the ranks in his profession. And he finally got to a place in Milan where he had reached all of his career goals and he had even exceeded all of his expectations. And he had power and he had authority and he had comfort and he had success. He had control. And yet he realized that everything he had been building his life toward was not satisfying in itself. He reached this place that he thought he would finally find satisfaction in, and it was a total letdown. And so Augustine, his life story is far more contemporary than we realize. He left Milan. He went back to his home in North Africa, and he spent the rest of his life ministering in a, in a parish there, and that's where he did all of his great writing. Augustine sometimes called the patron saint of the restless heart. And he taught that the essence of faith in Christ is a journey, but it's not just a, a meandering, wandering with no destination. It's a movement toward home, to the place that we belong, to rest. His most famous quote is that our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O God. And this month, we're spending Advent with the prophet Isaiah. And these are among his themes as well, the themes of, of exile, of wandering, of homelessness, but also of a homecoming, of a, of a place of belonging, of a final rest. Last Sunday, we were in Isaiah 11. This Sunday, we're in chapter 35. And between 12 and 34, there's a whole lot of prophecy from Isaiah that we're jumping over uh, just to keep this a four-week series. But these are actually some of the more difficult chapters in the book. It's Isaiah pronouncing judgment on all these nations surrounding Israel. And every time he does so, he warns Israel that they will become like the nations if they don't turn from their sin and focus on God. But you can get to the point by chapter 34 where it's just kind of a grind. I don't know if you've ever done a Bible reading plan and you find yourself day in and day out like, man, this is just difficult. You're in a difficult stretch of scriptures, whether it's Numbers or Leviticus or the middle first part of, of Isaiah. And then all of a sudden you hit Isaiah 35 and everything just turns. And after this vision for chapter on chapter of judgment, we get a vision of renewal that's far greater than anything we imagined. Just when it seems like we're totally lost, a way is opened up to us, and it's the way back home. Isaiah 35 envisions what begins with the first advent or the first arrival of Christ, what begins with his birth but doesn't, isn't fully completed until his second advent, his second coming. And that's the total restoration of our natural world. What Jesus began to do was not only the salvation of our souls and our bodies, but it was the restoration of our entire world, the entire cosmos. 
And that's finally and fully done at the second advent or arrival of Christ. And so three truths today. We were made for home, number one. Number two, our lives are spent in exile. And then number three, there is a way. There's a way home. And so the first theme is that we were made for home. Israel's whole history is a history of of exile, of wandering, of homelessness. When God called Abraham back in the earliest days of Scripture, he told him to go to a land that he would show him. And Abraham spent years, decades of his life, simply trying to find the place that God had called him to. Later, when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, even when they were released from slavery, they were made to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses, who is the greatest figure in the entire Old Testament, he didn't even get to enter the promised land. He could only look on it. And then he died before even setting foot into it. His whole life was spent in exile. Israel continued on and they reached a high point with David and Solomon where they had a temple and yet they were still surrounded by war and conflict all those years. And then finally they were taken back into exile by Assyria, later by Babylon. And even when they returned to Jerusalem, they were still under the rule of other people. Israel's whole history is a history of exile. At the same time, our history, our history as human beings is a history of exile. Looking for this home that we are created for, I think of what, what makes a real home for us. Like if you think about, you know, you've lived in different places, you've lived in different houses, but what really makes something a home? This week I thought of three things. The first thing is that home is where you can be yourself, you know? When you're at home, you can wear whatever you want, you can eat whatever you want, you can decorate however you want. You can just totally rest and be yourself and just the way you are. Whatever you want to be, that can be you. That's your home. You can be yourself. The second thing is that home is where everything fits you, where you have all of your stuff. You have everything arranged as you like it. And that becomes especially important to us when we step away from home for a while. You know, if you go on a long journey or a road trip, you're, you're away for days on end. You sleep in somebody else's house or in a hotel room where like 5,000 other people have slept on this same mattress. It's exhausting, right? You find yourself worn out and worn down because it's not home, because you don't have everything that you need. And then when you finally get home, there's that sense of, I, I can be myself, I have everything I need, and then you can finally rest. And then the third thing is that home is where you're no longer looking ahead to what's next. I remember when I was at Mizzou, and this was a long time ago, it was before the dorms at Mizzou had all been, been restored and renovated, so I didn't have air conditioning in Hudson Hall when I was in college. So I have this tiny little, you know, nine by 10 foot square with cold tile floor, a random roommate who I never saw, never talked to, that like prison grade mattress that's like three inches thick. That whole year I just spent looking ahead to what was next. Like this is not my home, I'm looking forward to something else. Even when we bought our first home in Louisville, it was so small, it had one bathroom. We have three boys, they were getting a lot bigger. And we just began to look forward to what was next. It no longer felt like a home, like we had outgrown it. But home is where you're no longer looking forward to what comes next. And this is exactly what mankind had in the Garden of Eden. 
It was a home where you could be totally yourself without fear of judgment or anything else, where you, everything fits you. There's perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden, and there is no looking ahead to something else, but God's presence was on them in a way that there was nothing else that they possibly needed. And so we were created for this garden, for the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve were sort of like representatives for us. And when they sinned in the garden, they represented us in that sin. They did the same thing that any one of us would have done. It's human nature. And so even though we were created for this incredible, beautiful home where we have everything that we need, where we can fully rest, Adam and Eve were banished from that home. And ever since, every one of us has this sense of being banished. Think about it. Every brokenness in relationship, every ounce of brokenness causes some kind of exile. So if your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, they don't keep hanging out with you. No, you're banished. Right? If you move from one place to another, if you lose your job, you're banished. You don't keep showing up. There's a distance now between the relationships. If you're in conflict with somebody in your family, either you or the other person's probably no longer invited to Christmas. Somebody gets banished if the conflict is big enough. There's always a removal from the presence of relationship when sin is involved. This is what brokenness causes. And so even though we were made for home, the second truth is that our lives are spent in exile. And this is our story too. The story of Israel is our story, a story of feeling lost, a story of feeling homeless, like this world does not fit us. And it's not enough for God to simply give us a spiritual home. If we're physical beings that we're embodied and emplaced in space and time, the redemption that God brings about for us is a physical redemption. It includes the restoration of the entire world. He not only forgives our sins, he not only gives us a place in heaven, but he gives us a physically restored world to inhabit. And yet we don't fully have it yet. We only have it in part. We were made for our home, and yet our lives are spent in exile. This is why literal homelessness, actually being out on the streets, is one of the most brutal forms of life possible. You have no rest. It's not only cold. It's not only exposing you to sickness around the clock. It literally takes years off of people's lives to be out on the streets. Literal homelessness, it's dehumanizing. You can never rest. You can never feel like yourself. You can never have the things that you need to do life. That's why Christianity has always been sensitive to the homeless and most shelters and food centers, even the ones in our city, the ones that are, that are overflowing with people even now, ones supported by, by Love, Inc. and Jobs for Life and, and Turning Point. These are all faith-based initiatives because Christianity understands that homelessness is all of our own conditions. There was a German philosopher, Martin Heidegger, and he said with a single word to describe all of modern society, he used the word homeless. He said all people in America and in Europe, we all share one thing, and that's that we're homeless. We're not connected to one another. We're not connected to our place. We have no real sense of home in this world. And he wasn't a believer, but he was picking up on the fact that we're all looking for something that this world doesn't provide. And we're faced with this disconnect every single day. But it's only in the gospel, only in Christianity, that we can find a way back home. 
Advent speaks into all of this. It speaks into our exile. It speaks into our homelessness. It speaks into our desire for a true and final home. If we're brutally honest about the Christmas narrative, it's far messier than it, it, it can seem in, in like a Christmas concert with little kids, right? Like we don't give them the full picture, at least not yet, but it was a pretty gruesome scene when Jesus was actually born. Like it wasn't the silent, perfect night with the little like cooing animals, the sheep that you want to pet. Like it was a brutally difficult moment for Joseph and Mary. Imagine having to try, travel 80 or 90 miles from your hometown to Bethlehem because there was this uh, census that everybody needed to be counted in their hometown. And so you're traveling 80 or 90 miles, nine months pregnant, probably on a donkey. And Joseph the whole time is just hoping and praying that one of his old family members, somebody would show them some hospitality when they arrived, give them a place where they could give birth to their first child. All of this was stacked against them. It was not a, a pleasant scene when Mary began to go into labor, like pulling on Joseph saying, he's coming. This is the time. It's coming. That's a terrifying moment. I've been through three births as a dad. They're all a little bit terrifying, but I can tell you for sure, somebody going into labor in a hospital feels a lot safer than somebody going into labor in your forerunner, which we had at one point. We made it to the hospital. It was fine. But that's a terrifying moment to be traveling somewhere and for labor to be like full going. It's happening. And so in this moment, Mary's about to give birth. J Joseph is scrambling, trying to find a place. And I don't know if you've thought about this. Why, why did they not find a place? I mean, maybe a lot of people were coming back home for the census. But Israel was a culture of hospitality. People would open their homes to one another, especially if Joseph was from there. There's no reason they shouldn't have had a place to stay that night. Most likely, scholars believe it's because of the fact that they were unmarried, because Mary was herself probably an early teenager, 14 or 15 years old. And so as they went and they visited their family members or visited people and shared their situation, these Israelites looked out at Joseph and Mary and said, so you're unmarried, she's a teenager, and you need a place to give birth. And then they would close the door. And so you can imagine the humiliation, the frustration, the, the inhospitality of our brutal world in that moment where they can't even find a room to give birth in. Jesus wasn't even born into a home. Jesus was born into exile. He was born in an animal stable. And as soon as it was time, it was revealed in a dream that they needed to go to Egypt. And so they spent their first few years as refugees in another country. Even as years went by and they finally settled into their home, it was a, an early life of obscurity in a poor town among poor people. Later in his ministry, Jesus would tell others, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. For three years of traveling in ministry, Jesus didn't have a home. He was simply dependent on the hospitality of others. And so there's no one in the universe who knows the feeling of exile, the feeling of homelessness, better than Jesus himself. Jesus chose these conditions to be born into the world, to be born into a stable, to be born on the run, born into exile. Jesus knows exactly what it feels like 
to long for home, to have a sense of home, but to only feel exile. And this is our lives. This is our life when we're separated from God. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. God is our home. God is the place where we can finally rest, where everything fits, where we can be ourselves. And yet we still have a sense that our our home can't just be merely spiritual. We long for a physical, tangible home, a place where we can fully rest, where all our fears are, are wiped away, all of the injustices of the world are brought to an end, all of our deepest longings are satisfied. But the reality is that if anything other than God is our home, we'll we'll constantly be looking forward, constantly be in exile. We turn to all sorts of other things for our security, for our strength, for our comfort. We put things in the place of home that only belongs to God. We put things like our work. We put things like others' approval, the comforts of this world. We look to those things as a sort of home, and then they constantly fail us. If anything other than God is our home, we'll remain homeless. And so we were made for home, but we spend our lives in exile. And the good news is that there is a way back home. This is the meaning of Advent. That Christ came to make a way for us. For thus, who had no way, a way is opened up in Christ. A way to return to a home that's not only as great as the Garden of Eden, but even better. That at his second advent, his second coming, he would restore the entire physical world and bring us home. So if you look at the first few verses of Isaiah 35, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Literally, he's saying one day all deserts and wastelands and wildernesses will be transformed into places of beauty, places where you want to be. There will be no desert in the new heavens and new earth. Like the crocus, verse 2, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. A crocus is this beautiful flower that blooms almost year-round. I had to look it up. I don't really know anything about gardening and flowers but it's this incredible flower that when it blooms, it opens up far beyond its size. It's this incredible thing that can exist in almost every single color. And Isaiah is saying all creation will bloom like it in joy. We saw this last week in Isaiah 11 that the wolf and the lamb can lie down together. The child can play next to the snake's hole because there's harmony in all of creation at the return of Christ. This continues that theme that there is total harmony in all of eternity, that there is a complete and total restoration of our world. It says the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. And these three places were like oases oases of beauty in the Middle East, places where if you were traveling, you couldn't wait to get to one of these places. And it says they will all see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The whole earth will be renewed. All who trust in him will see the glory of God and will finally be home. What Advent shows us is that Jesus is that way. Jesus is the way back home. 
Jesus is the one that takes us to everything that we have been longing for our entire lives. Isaiah says, we will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown our heads. Gladness and joy will overtake us. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. And so if we ask, how do we get back home? How does Christ lead us to our home? The chapter ends with this, a highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it, but only the redeemed will walk there. Those the Lord has rescued will return. Jesus is that way. He leads us back to the home that we have always hoped existed. And I think this leads us to two things as we think about what does it look like for us to find our home. And the first thing is to embrace this good news, embrace the good news of Christmas. The gospel of Christmas is that Jesus left his home, his true and perfect home in the heavens. He left a home that was better than anything we could possibly imagine, and he came into this poor, cold, and broken world to save us. He gave up his home so that we would find a home of our own. He was born in a manger. His life was spent in exile. And then at the worst possible moment at the cross, he faced ultimate exile, ultimate banishment. He was cut off from relationship even with his father. He experienced the ultimate form of homelessness and going to the cross on our behalf. It says Jesus was crucified and he died outside of the camp. They wouldn't even crucify him within the walls of Jerusalem, but they took him outside. Even in death, he was removed. And so Jesus suffered all the things that we are most afraid of. Exile, banishment, homelessness. And he did it so that we would never have to. So that a way would be opened to us, a way back home. He turns the desert into a garden bursting with life. The badlands become an oasis. The wilderness becomes heavenly. And I love the picture of joy that wraps up this chapter, and I'll read it again. We will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown our heads. Gladness and joy will overtake us, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Since we were created for a perfect world, God makes sure that our salvation is not just spiritual, but it's also physical, and he places us in a true and eternal home. And so embrace the gospel of Christmas, but second, join the mission of Christmas. The mission of Christmas is the restoration of all things. Isaiah shows us the end of our days, the the brink of human history, and then from there he calls us how to live tells us how to live in our present age. The vision of Isaiah is not just our eternal destiny. Our salvation in Christ is not something that we only look forward to. But as one writer on Isaiah says, heaven is a long, slow, steady ascent into the presence of Christ. The moment you come to Christ, you begin to enter heaven in one sense as eternal life is open to you and you step into life with Christ on this very earth. This eternal movement into the heart of God includes the restoration of our world. But it begins between the first advent 
in the second one. What Jesus began after his first arrival continues now. And even though it will only be completed his second coming, we can align ourselves with his work in this very world right now. Every few months, I like to envision what a, what a renewed Columbia would look like. If, if Christ is coming back and the whole earth is being renewed, and cities are coming down from heaven, cities that are perfect and without injustice, without sin, without brokenness, without pain, without cancer, what would Columbia look like in this perfect place? What would that renewed Columbia look like? And how much of it is God already doing in our presence even now? Women and men who love the Lord and are on fire and full of the Holy Spirit, following Him with all of their lives. Churches and ministries partnering together to serve their city, to elevate those who are marginalized, to love one another in deep and in true ways. No more poverty, no more hunger, no more crime, no more homelessness. Worship and prayer like we've never seen or experienced before. It's not merely sitting on the, on the clouds and being in this, this strange place where nothing ever happens. It's a real, renewed earth where we are finally and fully home. And the question is, how do we give ourselves to this renewal here and now? How do we join Christ in his mission of Christmas of bring restoration to all things? Where has God positioned you to bring about renewal in the lives of the people around you? in the world that you inhabit, where you have some measure of influence. Even though our journey is long and difficult, we can know that one day we will be home. It's in the pursuit of the world, pursuing its peace and its comfort, its status, its success. Pursuing the things of the world, we always come up empty-handed. Well, there's a great line in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He writes, If you pursue the world, you come up empty. If you pursue Christ instead, you will find him. And with him, everything else is thrown in. And so when we get Christ, we get the whole earth thrown in as well. We get the restoration of all things through Jesus. And in Christ, because of his death and resurrection, we have this home, this life that we've always wanted this elusive dream that we've hoped is out there somewhere, this home where we can finally rest, where all things are made new. One day, as Isaiah says, gladness and joy will overtake us. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Let's pray.